Welcome to another episode of Yay Nay Omer presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And as quite often happens, this week's cinematic edition of this podcast is a rather eclectic mix of three films I have for you today. First, we have the mainstream queer romantic comedy Bros, the Palm Door winning film Triangle of Sadness, and also the horror film Barbarian. And speaking of Barbarian, I have come to the decision that the best way of talking about and reviewing the film Barbarian is to completely spoil it. It was already going to be a rather hard task to do because the aspects of this film which have been in the marketing, a young woman, Georgina Campbell, goes to Detroit for a job interview, hires an Airbnb to find it's already being occupied by the creepy guy Bill Skarsgård. That is by no means the majority of the film. In fact, it's a very small section of the film, and it goes into completely different directions in the last two-thirds of the film. So it was already going to be quite difficult to talk about without giving away spoilers which haven't been in the trailers and marketing. But I kind of want to talk about it because this isn't the film I was expecting, like I said, the marketing only covers the first third of the film, and I think the film it actually is, is a little bit problematic. I mean, honestly, my non-spoiler review of Barbarian is it's not the film it purports to be, and the film it purports to be isn't actually as interesting as the film that was marketed. So, it's a very, very low meh. And if you want to hear full reasons for that, or my opinion of that, then I will be giving away full spoilers for the film Barbarian in the course of this podcast. So be fully aware of that. But with that said, I have three reviews for you today. Bros, Triangle of Sadness and Barbarian. And without further ado, let's get on with today's reviews. Cinema Reviews Bros is a mainstream romantic comedy made under the auspices of Judd Apatow, which just so happens to have gay protagonists, which to me seems like a big step forward. And clearly, the filmmakers also think it's a big step forward because. The advertising reel that I saw before Bros was provided by DCM, Digital Cinema Marketing, the company that usually does the adverts for Odeon, but it was specifically tailored to Bros and to the LGBTQ plus community, highlighting companies which have done 
their bit for the court. So yeah, I, I think this is to some degree an event more than a film, but regardless of that, it did sound interesting, particularly given the people involved. It is directed by and co-written by Nicholas Stoller, who is one of my favourite comedic filmmakers. He is a frequent collaborator with Jason Siegel and also Judd Apatow, and most of Nicholas Stoller's films involve one or both of them. He directed the excellent romantic comedy Forgetting Sarah Marshall and its somewhat trashy spin-off Get Him to the Greek. He wrote and directed what I think is possibly my favourite film under the Apatow umbrella, The Five-Year Engagement. He also wrote and directed the animated film Storks, which was a little bit of a left turn, and has written the last two Muppets movies and Dora and the Lost City of Gold, which is so much more fun than it has any right to be. So yeah, Nicholas Stoller is one of my favourite comedic filmmakers, and he co-writes this film with Billy Eichner, who also stars in the film, who personally I know from his recurring role on Parks and Recreation, but is a very big deal as a YouTube comedian. I mean, his shtick is he goes up to random people on the street and asks them absurd and occasionally confrontational questions. So yeah, Billy Eichner is a big enough deal that he was given his own gay romantic comedy. And Billy Eichner stars as a very angry and very confrontational gay podcaster who, given his high profile, has also been put as the chair of the board of a new queer museum which is starting in New York. And he is constantly arguing with his fellow board members who run the entire gamut of the queer spectrum with trans, queer, bi people all trying to carve out their little corner of the queer spectrum and arguing with anybody who dismisses their particular version of queerness. And there's some really good people in this board. We have Miss Lawrence, T.S. Madison, Dot Marie Jensen, Eve Lindley, and Jim Rash as the aggressively bi character, which was kind of cool. But that job's like herding cats and trying to get funding for a queer museum in New York is not as simple as it might seem. So Billy Eichner is completely stressed out about that. And he's also very much a commitment phobe who is basically alone and claims to not mind being alone. But wouldn't you know it, when he is reluctantly dragged out to a club one night, he meets the incredibly hot, incredibly hunky Luke McFarlane and sparks start flying. But Luke McFarlane is equally commitment phobic and is much more likely to have sex in a group setting rather than you know, have a quote-unquote relationship. 
So can these two crazy, queer, commitment-phobic kids make it work in New York City? I love the fact that we have a situation here where a romantic comedy has been made from within the community of homosexuals. It is a film which deals in specifics of homosexual relationships and homosexual sex in very frank and usually very funny ways. But I think we are in a situation where we're still not quite ready as a society at large for this kind of thing to work. I mean, this film has kind of bombed in America. It was mostly released as a premium VOD release. And even given that reasonably low bar, it didn't perform very well. In places like New York and San Francisco, it did well, but it completely died in the South. It completely died in middle America and has been subjected to consistent review bombing on IMDb. Last time I looked, 36% of the reviews on IMDb were one star. This is a film which is fighting an uphill battle. And the problem is, I can easily see that in good faith, people could have a bad reaction to this. I do have issues with this film, which I will be getting onto in a minute. But when these good faith bad reviews add to the non good faith reviews, I'm betting most of those one star reviews were put onto IMDb even before the film officially came out. It's just adding to the noise. And when a film like this doesn't do well, when a film like In the Heights, for example, doesn't do well, the chances of the very cautious, very conservative with a small c Hollywood studio system taking another risk on a similar film is much, much lower. And that's depressing. That's disappointing. It's frustrating that bros isn't better. If I could say I give this my full-throated support, this is an excellent romantic comedy, everybody who's on this film's way should go and see it, that would be one thing. But I honestly can't because I do have issues with this film. Billy Eichner has a very, very specific comedic shtick. He is very intense, very angry, very confrontational. And that is the persona which he takes over in this film. And, you know, the the angry podcaster, you know, screaming out into the void and, you know, getting attention and getting listens thanks to his very angry, very aggressive stance on certain things. I mean, that was, you know, that <laughs> hits a little bit close time, although podcasting nowadays is very, very different from when I started over 10 years ago. But this idea of having the angry, aggressive person who is constantly fighting his corner, constantly trying to 
shine a light on queer history. Trying to confront people with the erasure of queer history throughout history. I mean, there's a subplot. One of the exhibits he wants to put in this proposed new music museum is saying that Abraham Lincoln might have been bisexual. And yes, there's some evidence for that, but it's not very strong evidence. And dedicating an entire room to saying that Abraham Lincoln was bisexual, that's a very, very confrontational thing to do. But Buddy Eichner is determined to get this out there because we need to expose the world to the history of the queer community, no matter the cost. Uh, and having that kind of aggressive confrontational style, I mean, obviously that also ends up losing him money and people, you know, people who've been planning to finance this museum pull out. And one of the ways they try and fill in this shortfall is get in touch with Deborah Messing. Deborah Messing playing herself in the film. Deborah Messing from Will and Grace. And I really don't know if Deborah Messing had any input into her character in this film or whether it was the writers Billy Eichner and Nicholas Stoller who wrote this for her. But in the film, Deborah Messing comes across, she's basically completely losing her shit. When Billy Eichner has this meeting with Deborah Messing at the exact worst point in the relationship between Billy Eichner and Luke McFarlane. So he's down and he asks for advice from you know, Deborah Messing, every gay boy's best friend. And Deborah Messing just completely loses this and says, I'm a divorced single mother. I am not every gay boy's best friend. Why do you all come up to me and give me your problems? I just can't cope with this shit anymore. And she storms out. And I'd really love to know how much Deborah Messing put into that. But yeah, I mean, that's the kind of thing we have. I mean, it, it, it is a film which deals with the specifics of a queer relationship and this particular type of queer commitment phobic relationship. And there is something to that. But by having this very confrontational attitude from your protagonist, Billy Eichner, or you know, the, the main person we are focused on, it gets grating after a while. And when you have the flow of the film stopping dead every few minutes, you know, to have discussions about queer history and queer representation throughout history, I mean, yes, it, you kind of expect, I mean, he is trying to build a museum of queer history. But throwing in all these anecdotes, I mean, there's even a bit about the hangover and its use of the homophobic F word, which I'll be coming back to a bit later in the podcast, actually. But the fact that even very recently, a film like The Hangover, one of the opening lines of The Hangover is paging Dr. F word. And that's fine, that's interesting, I mean, getting that representation out there, but throwing it into a film like this and breaking up the flow of the film, I mean, it, frequently we just stop stone dead to have these discussions on queer history and queer representation, and it just really breaks up the flow of the film, and I think that is an issue. But it does deal with the specifics, I mean, there's a 
brief trip to Provincetown in Massachusetts, which has long been a haven for the gay community. And I love the fact that uh, Billy Eichner and Luke McFarlane book into this B&B, and the B&B is run by Harvey Feierstein, queer icon, director of Torch Song Trilogy, very, very distinctive voice. And seeing Harvey Feierstein for a couple of minutes in this film was delightful. And the fact that they go to Provincetown, I mean, that is a very specific homosexual environment. So explore that, that's fine. There's also, weirdly, a song which comes up towards the end of the film which deals with the specifics of homosexual life. And it was actually written by Billy Eichner and the composer of the score of this film, Mark Scheiman. And I'm actually going to play a little bit of it now because I think this film is actually kind of brilliant and it's the kind of song that should be in contention for Best Original Song at the Oscars. But given some of the lyrical content, I doubt that's going to happen. But it does deal with specifics of homosexual life. And it should be pointed out that one of the subplots, I mean, is here's Billy Eichner, this you know, Jewish New York City boy who is attracted to Luke McFarlane, this country boy who's into Garth Brooks. So that's why this song sounds a little bit like Garth Brooks. But yes, here is a clip of Love Is Not Love, performed by Billy Eichner. When we first made love There weren't two of us, there were four Two dirty boys in a candy store And it hurts to want more Love is not love our love is free I let you be you and you let me be me So yeah, I doubt those lyrics are going to be put forward in a performance at the Oscar ceremony, do you? But yeah, I still think it's a good song and it's a good moment to me. And the relationship between Billy Eichner and Luke McFarlane is actually kind of sweet. I mean it's a somewhat typical relationship for a romantic comedy having two very commitment phobic people who are very very cautious about taking that last step and breaking down those barriers and actually trying to get something together and being very different people i mean luke mcfarlane is this country boy who used to play ice hockey when he was a kid he comes from a reasonably rural area. And he's got a little bit of internalised homophobia. You know, he's, he's had to be in the closet for long enough that he's still affected by that, whereas Billy Eichner is you know, out and proud and very loud. So, I mean, there's different personality types. And I do like the fact that there's a recurring subplot about how the Hall Heart channel, which is clearly a parody of the Hallmark channel, has started putting out queer stuff. As Billy Eichner rather cynically says, once their audience became 10% less homophobic, they realised we were a market that they could exploit. So they started making mildly queer Christmas movies. 
And that's kind of true, but I also like the fact it's in this particular film, because guess where Luke McFarlane makes most of his money? He has been in 14 Hallmark movies. And actually, the last time I saw Luke McFarlane, he was in the Hallmark-esque Christmas movie for Netflix, Single All The Way. So yeah, Luke McFarlane is basically a Hallmark actor and they're taking the piss out of that. I wonder if Luke McFarlane was cast before or after that was put into the film. But yeah. And their relationship is kind of sweet. I mean, there's sequences where they're basically prodding each other. I mean, literally prodding each other in certain cases. You know, why don't you want to commit? Why can't you be more open with your family? And that kind of stuff. And there's a scene which kind of starts out like wrestling and then moves to the bedroom and some of that I'm pretty sure was improvised because there's some weird physical stuff that goes on. I mean, it's it's basically 40% fighting and 60% fucking, and it's actually kind of sweet. And, yeah, I mean, some of the intimate moments are done very well. I mean, there's another uh, romantic scene or eventually a sex scene, which is choreographed to Joan Armatrading's love and affection which I don't think I've ever seen done before, but is blindingly obvious. And yeah, that was really, really nice, seeing love and affection used for a sex scene. So their relationship is kind of nice and develops along interesting levels. And also making comments about the gay dating scene, as opposed to the heterosexual dating scene, I suppose. I mean, so many interactions you know sexual interactions or romantic interactions are texting each other through you know grinder or various other apps with vapid platitudes saying hey what's up hey what's up i mean that's how all of these conversations start i mean a text chain of vapid platitudes and then meeting up for dispassionate sex i mean that's the norm so when you have what appears to be genuine attraction, genuine affection, maybe something long-lasting starting between Billy Eichner and Luke McFarlane, that changes things, that changes the dynamic. And, yeah, it's, it's a sweet romance. I like the specificity of making it a homosexual romance. But the shtick of Billy Eichner does get grating after a while, this very intense, very aggressive attitude he has, and the way the film stops stone dead every few minutes to have an anecdote about queer representation and queer history, that too gets grating after a while. So there are flaws in this film, and I can easily see how people in good faith can give a negative review to this film. But when you're adding to the pile-on of non-good faith negative reviews, it just makes it all the harder. So, yeah, I, I don't think I can give this film my full-throated support, but it is good enough, and, let's face it, it needs the support. So I do think that Bros is worth watching. 
I think there's definitely some good stuff here. There's definitely some sweet romance. There's definitely some laugh out loud moments. That song at the end is rather fun. So yeah, there's some good stuff here, but it is also at the same time flawed. Bros is probably still in the cinemas by the time this comes out, and for me, it is a solid, mostly recommended, meh. Next up, we have Triangle of Sadness, the Palm Door winning film from Swedish director Ruben Östlund, who has a string of doing well at Cannes. His film Force Majeure won a jury prize at the Uncertain Regard section of the Cannes Film Festival. His film after that, The Square, also won the Palme d'Or. So Ruben Ursland has won Palme d'Or for his last two films, making the very, very short list of directors who've won multiple Palme d'Or. But honestly, as I've talked about on this podcast, I'm not really a fan of Ruben Ursland's material. His kind of awkward humour and cringe-inducing black comedy is not really to my tastes. I was okay with Force Majeure, but yeah, that was a little bit cringy. Didn't like The Square at all. So I wasn't particularly looking forward to Triangle of Sadness, but it won the Palme d'Or and therefore is a reasonable Oscar contender, particularly since it's in the English. So I thought, let's check this out and see what all the fuss is about. It stars Harris Dickinson and the late Charles B. Dean as a couple of models, runway models, who are also Instagram influencers. They have a bit of a toxic relationship with each other. They're kind of self-involved, kind of selfish, kind of vapid. And their relationship possibly might be on the rocks, but who knows when you're still getting all the likes on Instagram and we may as well just stay together for Instagram. As part of their influencer sphere, they get free tickets on a luxury yacht cruise in the Mediterranean. Surrounded by the obscenely wealthy, and in most cases just obscene, people who would go on this kind of luxury cruise. We have a Russian oligarch played by Zlatko Buric, who seems to have brought both his wife and his mistress on this cruise at the same time, and they seem to be okay with this. They all eat at the same table. We also have a rather geeky guy, Henrik Dawson, who has just sold his app company and wants to spend some of his money. There's a lovely old... English couple, Oliver Ford Davis and Amanda Walker, who significantly are named Winston and Clementine, which was the name of the Churchills. But yes, this lovely old English couple are on this yacht, and they turn out to be international arms dealers. And we also have Iris Burben, who is 
a stroke victim and uses a wheelchair. And because of her stroke, she can only say one phrase, Im der Vulcan. And all of these incredibly demanding passengers are trying to be herded like cats by the guest coordinator, played by Vicky Berlin, who is desperately trying to keep everything in order, despite the fact that the captain of this luxury yacht, Woody Harrelson, has locked himself in his cabin and is just drinking and ignoring all his duties. And this will become a problem, because the fact that Woody Harrelson is in his cabin alone and drinking essentially sets off a chain of events, which leads to a disastrous captain's dinner where everybody gets incredibly seasick. And there's comedically large amounts of vomit in that particular scene. It also happens to be during an incredibly powerful storm. And then the pirates show up. And the yacht sinks and a group of passengers end up on a deserted island. We have the Instagram models, Harris Dickinson and Charlie Dean the geeky app manager Henrik Dawson, the Russian oligarch Zlatko Buric, the stroke victim Iris Burban, the guest coordinator Vicky Berlin, Jean-Christophe Folly, who claims he's one of the people who works in the engine room, but is almost certainly one of the pirates who actually, you know, blew up the yacht. And also, there is Dolly de Leon, who is a Filipino worker on this yacht. The crew member, Vicky Berlin, dismissively describes her as the toilet manager. But when you're on the deserted island, having practical skills and practical abilities, how are you going to start a fire? How are you going to fish? Do you know how to do this, billionaires? No. Well, I do. So now I, the Filipino-made Dolly de Leon, is in charge. So how are you going to deal with that? And this fluctuating ideas of power dynamics and privilege and gender roles starts playing out in increasingly Lord of the Flies-like ways on this deserted island in the middle of the Mediterranean. So, I actually liked Triangle of Sadness more than I thought I would. Yes, it does have the same awkward humour in places the same disgusting humour. I mean, there is too much vomit and sewage in the Captain's Dinner scene. But I think the difference in Triangle of Sadness... It's actually a little bit similar to how I felt about the horror film owner in the year, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. These are awful people and they deserve everything that's coming to them. Whether that be explosive food poisoning or stuck on a deserted island and under the power of this Filipino-made Dolly de Leon. This is a film which has a point. I mean, arguably it's a point which is made rather bluntly but it does have a point. 
the power dynamics shifting consistently throughout the course of the film. I mean, these obscenely wealthy people who make unreasonable requests and demands, and because Woody Harrelson, the captain, isn't necessarily on board with all of this, things get completely out of hand. I mean, there's a situation where one of the passengers, one of the people on this yacht, makes a completely unreasonable demand. But because Woody Harrelson, the captain, is just checked out and drinking in his cabin, that's allowed to slide, that's allowed to happen. And I believe because that happens, my reading of the film is that what that's why the food poisoning happens at this captain's dinner, which also happens to be on the most storm-strewn night of the cruise. I mean, the guest coordinator, Vicky Berlin, said to the captain, look, we need to organise this. Any day except Thursday, when there's supposed to be a storm, We when will you do the captain's dinner? And Woody Harrelson through the door says, oh yeah, yeah, just do it on Thursday. So this captain's dinner is happening on the one day it shouldn't be happening because Woody Harrelson is checked out. And when you combine that with the food poisoning, which I personally think was caused by the unreasonable demand earlier, it goes completely out of hand, you know, and people vomiting and all that kind of stuff. And the way that Woody Harrelson is checked out, I think is very telling. And again, rather blunt, because here is this man who is the captain of this luxury yacht, this $250 million yacht. And by the way, the, the yacht they used was the Christina O, the yacht of Aristotle Onassis. So, yeah, that was perhaps significant. But yes, he's this captain of this luxury yacht, but he's a Marxist. I mean, he's got so sick and tired of all these billionaires making unreasonable demands that he's basically cracked. And eventually, as everybody's throwing up and in the middle of this storm, he's on the Tanai making Marxist statements to the all the people in this yacht having arguments with this Russian oligarch Zlatko Buric. I mean, as Zlatko Buric says at one point, you know, the Russian capitalist and the American Marxist. These are pe- the people who are arguing. And those arguments are clearly what Ruben Ursland was trying to make a comment about, or one of the things that Ruben Ursland was making a comment about. The obscenely wealthy and how obscene they can be and how it affects the ordinary people. I mean, the the vast swathes of Filipino people below decks who nobody ever sees, nobody ever pays attention to. The front-facing guest coordinators who, yes, are being made unreasonable requests of, but there's a point early in the film where you know these people in you know, pristine white uniforms start sort of chanting, Mani, 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 Mani because that's all they care about. I mean, yes, they will put up with all this bullshit from these millionaires because they're getting paid rather well for it. Yeah, and there's layers going throughout this of what money can do, I mean, the pursuit of money can do. Uh, And that's, I think, largely what this film is about. It's about how a society with so many billionaires, has a fundamental flaw. 
when you know 1% of the population owns 80% of the wealth or whatever it is you know someone obs- as obscenely wealthy as Jeff Bezos and yet there are people starving all over the world that's the situation that Ruben Ersland is trying to make comment about and what happens when that regular understandable dynamic of I have money therefore I can make all the demands I want how that is completely flipped when the practical things you need to know in order to survive which this Filipino cleaner knows and nobody else who survived on this desert island does then the dynamics shift completely there as well. And I like the fact that Dolly de Leon knows how powerful her situation is, knows that she has the authority now. I mean, I know how to make a fire. I know how to fish. You don't. I'm in charge. And she exploits that. She exploits that to the nth degree. And she also exploits it sexually as well, using transactional sexuality in this situation as well and she's going to do that which brings up another interesting aspect of this film and that is making comments about gender roles as well once on the island it is instantly you know without really discussing it without really thinking about it it is instantly divided along gender lines the women on the island, the cleaner Dolly de Leon, the Instagram model Charlie Dean, and the guest coordinator Vicky Berlin, they're on one side of the island, and the men, the alpha men, are on the other. And that's just instantly how it breaks down. I'm making comments about that, and specifically, Charlie Dean says at one point to Dolly de Leon, You managed to tame the alpha male. And you know, there's something to that. And I do think that's another thing which Ruben Ursland is trying to make comments about because one of the very, very opening scenes, I mean, the first section of the film is following this Instagram couple, Charlie Dean and Harris Dickinson, and they're models, and they're in this fancy restaurant, and Charlie Dean just expects Harris Dickinson to pick up the bill. And this starts an argument because Charlie Dean makes three times as much money as a female runway model than Harris Dickinson does as a male runway model. And yet Harris Dickinson is the one who's always expected to pay. Charlie Dean went to this fancy restaurant and her menu didn't have prices on it, whereas Harris Dickinson's did. And even though Charlie Dean is making so much more money than Harris Dickinson, he's still expected to pay, and that starts an argument. And eventually Charlie Dean actually admits more or less that she is a manipulative sociopath i'm going to use my skills my abilities you know my attractiveness to get what i want and i don't feel too bad about doing that i mean i don't believe in love i don't believe in relationships it is good for our brands that we are together on instagram so let's just keep that together and that's a rather chilling and a rather cynical way of looking at things and yeah, I mean, it's it's a tragedy that Charlie Dean won't get to explore her acting abilities. I mean, she was a runway model. This was her first reasonably big acting role, at least in America. I mean, she had done a couple of things in her native South Africa. 
And then she died in August 2021 of an unspecified non-COVID illness, which she probably couldn't fight off because she lost her spleen to a car accident in 2008, and that left her immunocompromised enough that she just died at the age of 32, which is a real shame because, yeah, I mean, this is very much an ensemble piece. I mean, I wouldn't say there's any real leads in the film. I mean, if there are leads, they are. Charlby Dean and Harris Dickinson, but it's very much an ensemble piece. And Charlby Dean, I think, goes through some really, really interesting progressions. I mean, towards the end of the film, we have what seems to be some genuine growth from Charlby Dean's character. I mean, as I said, at the beginning of the film, she basically admits to being an omnipotent psychopath, doing anything she can to get her point of view. But by the end, she does seem to have some genuine growth, and the acting performance, the development of that, I absolutely believe. And sometimes I don't believe that kind of change of heart, but Charlby Dean, towards the end of the film, does seem to be a better person than she was at the start. And yeah, there's, there is some good acting there, and it's a shame we won't ever get to see that develop. But yeah, I mean, making comments about the obscenely wealthy, making comments about the still existent gender splits and gender expectations of society, making those comments is something to do and doing it in the sometimes awkward, sometimes black comedy stylings of Ruben Ursland. I mean, like this stroke victim frequently just gets abandoned and ignored because she's functionally immobile and functionally silent only ever saying in der Vulcan. so there is a little bit of the awkwardness there but i actually enjoyed this a lot more than ruben Erston's other films and yeah i basically liked it it's sometimes funny it does have some good observations to make even if they are a little bit trite and the psychology of these people you know both on the yacht and on the desert island I think there's some interesting stuff going on there and some interesting shifting going on. So yeah, I think Triangle of Sadness is a film I kind of liked. It's still not particularly my taste in cinema. So for me, Triangle of Sadness, which should still be in the cinemas by the time this comes out, is a pretty solid meh. And that brings us to the horror film released just in time for Halloween, Barbarian, which is written and directed by Zach Kreger, who is almost exclusively known as a member of the sketch comedy troupe, The Whitest Kids You Know. And most of his projects, including technically directing a couple of feature films in the past, have been under the auspices of the whitest kids you know. This seems to be the first time that Zach Kreger has done something outside that group, and he decided to make a horror film. I guess he's following a somewhat similar path to Jordan Peele. But Zach Kreger writes and directs this film, Barbarian, in which Georgina Campbell is a young woman who is going to Detroit for a job interview. And as is the common practice nowadays, she has hired an Airbnb 
in what turns out to be a rather shady and essentially derelict region of Detroit. But when she gets there in the pouring rain in the middle of the night, she can't get in. The keys are not in the lockbox. She can't get hold of the property manager. It looks like she's stuck in a rainstorm in the middle of the city. She doesn't know. But then a light goes on in the house she has rented, and it turns out that Bill Skarsgård is already inside the house, because he hired the room through a different rental app, I think Roomaway, I think he called it. I'm not familiar with these kinds of things, but yes, it has been double booked in two different rental websites. So with very little options and, you know, in the pouring rain, Georgina Campbell reluctantly agrees to stay the night with this total stranger, and you know, mildly creepy stranger, Bill Skarsgård. But then there are strange noises which start in the middle of the night. And is Georgina Campbell safe with this stranger who she has ended up sharing a house with? So that's where the marketing and the publicity for this film, Barbarian, essentially ends. And as I said earlier, from now on, I will be spoiling this film because I really think it's the best way to talk about it and talk about the issues I have with the film, Barbarian. So, last warning, spoilers from now on. It turns out that Bill Skarsgård is not what Georgina Campbell needs to be worried about. Underneath this house in this derelict area of Detroit is firstly a creepy room with a dirty mattress, a video camera, an old-school VHS video camera, and a bloody handprint on the wall. And even further down, there's a large network of tunnels underneath this house, in which lives the mother, played by Matthew Patrick Davis, a naked and deformed woman who wants something to be a baby for her. And when. Bill Skarsgård and Georgina Campbell end up in this large network of tunnels under the house. Bill Skarsgård angers the mother and ends up dead, basically at the end of the first act. And then we scroll to Los Angeles, where we see Justin Long, who is an actor who is caught up in a scandal. He was about to start a pilot, but his co-star accused him of rape. And given the current climate, he has essentially been cancelled. He strenuously maintains his innocence, saying to all the people who will listen, look, I didn't do it. I mean, but everybody's distancing themselves from him. And when he is talking to a friend, a friend who, when he answers the phone from this friend, he says, hey, homophobic F-word. And in discussions with this friend who he calls the homophobic F-word, 
he basically did rape this girl. So anything that happens to Justin Long is okay as far as the audience is concerned. But given he is in urgent need of money since you know, he can't get any work, he goes back to his native Detroit and it turns out that he owns this house that has been used as an Airbnb. So he goes to Detroit planning to sell this house and make some quick money and he too gets caught up in the disturbing stuff going on underneath his house in this extensive tunnel network and he too eventually comes under the power of the mother and creepy shit starts going down in these tunnels underneath a rough area of Detroit. So, yeah, basically, what I thought this film would be, judging by the trailer and judging by the marketing, is a little bit of, of that you know, elevated horror style that companies like A24 put out. I mean, this is. Yes, a horror movie, but it's a horror movie with a point. I mean, this is a film about a woman feeling safe and not feeling safe in a particular situation. And Georgina Campbell, you know, not seeing all the red flags that this you know, supposedly creepy guy, Bill Skarsgård, is setting out there. I mean, it, it looked like, be careful, uh, be cautious, don't make rash decisions. That seemed to be what it is. And yeah, the first third of it is basically that. But then it completely changes direction and gets into something a lot more generic and a lot more basic, in my opinion. I mean, it's interesting stuff. I mean, the dynamics between Georgina Campbell and Bill Skarsgård, the way that Bill Skarsgård gradually gets in good with her. I mean, eventually they, they end up drinking together. I mean, there's this bottle of wine that's been set out by the property manager. And there's some remarkable coincidences that Bill Skarsgård has in common with Georgina Campbell, to the extent that, oh shit, Bill Skarsgård's done some research and knows exactly the right thing to say to Georgina Campbell in order to bring down her defences. But no, as it turns out, that appears to be an actual coincidence that Bill Skarsgård has this specific connection with what Georgina Campbell is doing in Detroit. So yeah, that doesn't play out. And then you have the middle third of the film, which again, an elevated-ish idea of this mildly obnoxious TV star who, as it emerges, probably is a rapist, even though he wouldn't describe himself as a rapist. He is a rapist. So that too has some elevation to it. I mean, having discussions about toxic masculinity and all that kind of stuff. And then basically the last third with you know, the mother is basically the hills have eyes. We'd also have a flashback to the 1980s when this was still a reasonably nice area of Detroit, although people around him are moving out. And there's this guy at the centre of it, Richard Brake, who is a genuine creep. I mean, the lead of his own episode of Criminal Minds. I mean, he is basically abducting women and raping them and then raping the daughters that come out of this. and 
you know, generation after generation after generation of of incest, and you end up with something like the mother, who is incredibly strong. I mean, absurdly strong, and you know, deformed. It's basically the hills have eyes. So, to have these interesting, valid ideas about the treatment of women in the modern world, and then suddenly it's just about a deformed monster who exists through incest. It's just not as interesting anymore. And it's also one of those films that has such massive plot holes that I noticed them even as I was watching the movie. The biggest one is the fact that clearly Zach Krager, the writer-director of Barbarian, doesn't know how GPS works. This young woman, Georgina Campbell, has gone to Detroit and she has rented a car. And when Justin Long comes to Detroit to this house, it's stated in dialogue that this is a couple of weeks later. And yet, the rental car is still outside the house. Georgina Campbell's rental car is still outside the house. All rental cars nowadays have GPS. I mean, when this rental car wasn't returned, surely the car company would have tracked down this car and seen it abandoned and started raising questions. And yet, apparently, they didn't. And that's even apart from the very, very basic thing that everybody's phone has a GPS in it as well. And when Georgina Campbell didn't show up for anything that she was planning to do. I mean, she's been missing for several weeks. Why has nobody reported her missing? And it would be very easy to turn on the GPS on her phone and figure out, oh, well, she's still in that house. Why is she still in that house? Let's go investigate. I mean, at the beginning of the film, she is ostentatiously screening calls from a man on her phone. So clearly somebody is worried about where she is. She's in Detroit for a job interview, which eventually takes place. And as she's leaving this job interview, the woman she's talking with says, Okay, I'll phone you tomorrow and we can make arrangements. I mean, she's clearly got the job. So when that woman phoned up the next day and didn't get any response, surely that would raise alarms. And it's been several weeks. She hasn't been reported missing. There's a sequence later in the film where. She eventually escapes this house. She escapes the tunnels underneath the house. She's panicked out of her mind, dirty, no shoes on. She eventually gets in touch with the police, and the police don't believe her. I mean, oh yeah, just go off and sleep it off. There's nobody in this house. And you know, be lucky we don't arrest you for vagrancy or you know, just being mentally ill. So yes, I think that's trying to make a point about women not being believed and possibly also making a comment about the police not believing the mentally ill, or what of who appears to be mentally ill. So I think that's trying to be making a point. But it would be so simple for Georgina Campbell to say, I've been missing several weeks, surely I've been reported missing, please help me. But no, for plot reasons, the police need to go away. So they can't believe her when she says, I've been taken. And that just doesn't make sense. And also this situation with the tunnels underneath the house. I mean, this is an extensive series of tunnels 
under this house. Nobody's noticed. You've dug this extensive network of tunnels underneath the house. I mean, yes, you probably have the time. I mean, this guy, Richard Brake, has been living in this house and abducting women for the past 40-odd years. So he's probably had time to dig a network of tunnels underneath his house, but nobody noticed. There was no subsidence anywhere. The sounds of this mother escaping over your eyes and you know, getting food and, and whatever. Nobody noticed. That doesn't make sense either. And the plot contrivances and the plot conveniences. In the course of trying to escape, Justin Long and Georgina Campbell get their hands on a gun. Brilliant. But for plot reasons, because the climax depends on them not having a gun, Justin Long manages to drop it. And of course he does. And he also shows himself to be a completely craven coward, where he essentially gives up Georgina Campbell, abandons her to her fate in the vain hope that he will escape. I mean, at least one of us will survive as he runs off, leaving her to her doom. But of course she's okay, because she's the final girl she needs to survive. But yeah, it's at every point, Really blunt, really obvious, really, really convenient. Stuff happens purely for plot reasons. And logically, you have to think, this should have gone very, very different. I mean, the simple fact of that rental car still being outside this house at least two weeks later, and nobody's checked, nobody's gone around and picked it up, Nobody's asked questions about where Georgina Campbell is. I mean, she clearly got the job. She was supposed to be in contact the next day, and nobody's asking questions as to where she is. It's, uh, she's a missing person. Why hasn't she been reported as a missing person? This film makes no sense. I mean, the practical, the logical side of it, the monster side of it, I mean, it's really, really regressive stuff that I've seen so many times in the past. I mean, yes, it's The Hills Have Eyes. Yes, it's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yes, it's Cabin Fever. It's Wrong Turn. I mean, we, we've seen this kind of thing so, so many times before. And when that's the movie you give me, when it's been marketed as this interesting psychological horror film about a woman's suspicions and listening to your suspicions, then it, it, it's... It's just not good enough. You know, earlier in this podcast, I said I was going to give this a low mare, but no, I've convinced myself. There's just no redeeming qualities about this film at all. I mean, some mildly interesting ideas, some pretty good acting, but Barbarian is not worth it. It should still be in the cinema by the time this comes out for, you know, the Halloween season, but yeah, it's not worth it for me. Barbarian is an A. New releases. It's going to be very, very busy for me in the next couple of weeks. Despite the fact there's only one reasonably wide release cinematically this week, many of the other tiny films which I'm going to have to work to get to intrigue me enough that I want to see them. And it's also the start of the Film Bath Festival this week. So almost every night for the next two weeks, 
starting this Saturday. I'm going to be seeing screenings at the Film Bath Festival and towards the end also the Africa Eye Festival over in Bristol. So it's going to be insanely busy. And I therefore am not sure when I'll be able to get a new cinematic episode or even a new streaming episode out, but regardless. The one reasonably wide release cinematically this week is a new film, Living, which I saw on the programme of the London Film Festival and I was instantly massively intrigued by. But since it had a release date in the near future, I didn't bother doing anything with the London Film Festival. Instead, I've just waited a couple of weeks and here it is. This has so many really, really cool people involved in it. I'm just dying to see it. Living is a remake of Akira Kurosawa's 1952 film Ikiru, To Live, which is cool in and of itself, but it stars Bill Nye is directed by Oliver Hermanus, the South African director behind the excellent queer films Beauty and Moffy, and the screenplay was written by Katsuo Ishiguro, who wrote The Remains of the Day, the novel, and also the novel Never Let Me Go, which Alex Garland adapted into a screenplay, and that is an excellent and somewhat underrated film. I mean, Katsu Ishiguro has done a couple of original screenplays in the early 2000s, but now he's adapting The Master Kurosawa, directed by Oliver Hermanus and starring Bill Nye. I mean, that is a huge collection of very, very talented people in this one film. So yeah, I am dying to see Living, which stars Bill Nye as a civil servant, a bowler-hatted, wearing civil servant in 1952, who is suddenly told he is dying. And this makes him reevaluate everything he's done with his life and sparks him to do something truly great with what is left of his life. And he is assisted on this new lease on life by a young woman he kind of knows, played by Amy Lou Wood, and they go and try and live life to the fullest in whatever is left of Bill Nighy's time on Earth. And yeah, I mean, Ikiru was a Kurosawa film I never got around to, so a couple of weeks ago I did watch it knowing that this remake Living was coming out, and it's really, really good. The funeral scene in Ikiru is one of the best written scenes I think I've seen in a long, long time. I can truly understand why it is considered such a classic and if this english language remake is anything like the original kurosawa film then we're in for something special so yeah i am dying to see living and that is added to the cinematic list this week as is a film called call jane which was on the program for this year's london film festival and i had options to see it on both an online screener and at the touring programme at the Watershed. It was the only film which was on both of those lists. But I skipped it because it was coming out imminently, but it's going to be so difficult to get to that I might as well have done it at the London Film Festival. But regardless, 
Cool Jane is a true life story, and even though it is a period piece, it is disturbingly relevant to the modern day. About a housewife in the 1970s, played by Elizabeth Banks, who, for medical reasons, needs to have an abortion. The likelihood of this pregnancy killing Elizabeth Banks is very, very high. But this is the United States in the early 1970s, and abortion is illegal. So Elizabeth Banks calls an underground network of activists, the Jane Network, in order to procure herself an illegal abortion, and gradually gets involved in this network and helps other women in this underground way achieve illegal abortions in 1970s America. And doesn't that sound disturbingly relevant? So, yeah. There's actually a a documentary that played at Sundance this year about this same group of women, which is rather interesting. I mean, I wonder which one came first. But regardless, this is a film directed by Phyllis Nagy, who is mostly known as a screenwriter. I believe this is her directorial debut. She's the woman who wrote Carol, amongst other things. And yeah, that kind of activist filmmaking is what we need in the modern world. I mean, there's been lots of films like this. I mean, like Plan B came out this year. Happening came out this year, the French film, which is excellent and yeah, along similar lines. So yeah, female empowerment, female choice is definitely a watchword for our times. And Call Jane is another film on that pathway which I do want to check out, even though, as it turns out, it's going to be very, very difficult to get to and fit in to my schedule with all these festival screenings. But anyway, also on the list are a couple of foreign language films which are on the schedule at the Watershed Cinema. We have a Chinese film called Return to Dust, which is a love story about two rural farmers eking out an existence in remote China when new government policies start affecting how they live their lives and their chances of survival. Yet they have each other. I mean, these are two people who are essentially rejected by their families. You know, you are no good. You may as well just go off with that one and marry them. And they support each other. They help each other in times of crisis and yeah that has the potential to be very very interesting and at time of recording china hasn't actually announced which film it submitted to the international feature oscar race the deadline has passed for submission but ampas has not yet announced its official list so possibly china might have submitted this film return to dust but Whether or not they did, it does sound interesting enough that I do want to check it out. And I also want to check out a film called Neptune Frost, which looks like a completely bizarre proposition. It is an Afrofuturist musical set in Burundi and made by a Burundian director and an American director and choreographer. It looks like 
a kind of anti-colonialist musical where miners working at a dangerous mine in Burundi, probably excavating coal town, which is needed for mobile phones, but I don't know for sure. But a rebellion starts using song and dance and protest, and it looks wild and crazy and psychedelic and neon painted. It looks really cool. There is going to be a director's Q&A at the Watershed, but unfortunately it clashes with one of my screenings at the Film Bath Festival, so that was disappointing. But regardless of anything else, I do want to check out Neptune Frost because it just looks such an extraordinary film. But yeah, that Afrofuturist musical from Burundi, and those are words I never thought I'd say together, that is coming out this week, and I do want to check it out. And the last cinematic film I want to check out is one I probably should have announced in the last episode because by the time this podcast comes out, it will have come and gone. It's a documentary called All That Breathes, which is being given a special screening at the Little Theatre here in Bath as part of the Picture House chain, as part of their Discover strand, which thanks to a new sponsorship deal they've got with the Kia car company, all the Discovery screenings are free for the rest of the year. So, hell yes, I'm going to be taking advantage of that. And the first time I'm going to be taking advantage of Kia's generosity is watching the film All That Breathes, which is a documentary that won awards at both Cannes and Sundance. So it seems very, very likely that it is going to be part of the considerations for documentary feature at the Oscars. And yeah, it sounds kind of interesting, and I probably wouldn't have bothered with it until I saw it listed very high up of potential nominees at the Oscars for documentary feature. But yes, All That Breathes is a documentary that follows two Delhi brothers as they try and save the endangered black kite in the very polluted air above Delhi. These are two brothers who have no background in veterinary medicine, but have taken it upon themselves to teach themselves how to take care of these birds of prey on the streets in the outskirts of Delhi. So, yeah, that sounds... Weird, frankly, but it is an award winner. It uh, does have Oscar potential, and I can watch it for free, so I will be checking out All That Breeds. The biggest release on Netflix this week is Enola Holmes 2, with Millie Bobby Brown returning as the teenage sister of Sherlock Holmes. The first one was an awful lot of fun, and I hope that the sequel will be just as entertaining. So yes, I will be checking out Enola Holmes 2 when I have time, but I've got so many Oscar Beatty type films to watch before then. There's also a Nigerian film which is being released onto Netflix. It's called Elishan Oba, The King's Horseman, which is apparently based on a Wole Shoyenka play and was in consideration to be submitted by Nigeria to the Oscars. But in the end, Nigeria did not submit a film. 
They had three submissions come in, including this film, Alishin Oba, but decided that none of the films that were submitted to them were eligible. The Ampas International Feature Committee extended the deadline, reconsider, please send us something, and yet again, they refused to send a film. And that's not the only time that happened. I mean, Egypt didn't submit a film, even though they had submissions come in. The committee decided nothing was worthy. Russia have decided to pull out because you you don't recognise us because we're invading our territory in Ukraine. I mean, fuck off. But yeah, Russia isn't submitting a film either. But regardless of anything else, Elishinoba does sound rather interesting. It's apparently based or inspired by a true story which happened in 1946 in the waning times of the Second World War where a king in the Yoruba Kingdom or what remains of the Yoruba Kingdom in 1946 dies and by tradition his horsemen, his lieutenants, his right-hand man, must commit ritual suicide and join him in the afterlife. But faced with doing this and faced with the debauchery and hedonism, I mean, your time on this life is short, hey, here's some girls, he refuses to do it and chaos and disaster befalls the Yoruba kingdom. So yes, that sounds rather allegorical, but yeah, based on a while showing play, it's available on Netflix, so may as well check out Elishin Oba, or at least add it to the list, because, as I said, I've got masses and masses of stuff to get to. There's yet another documentary added to Netflix, which does look rather interesting. It's called Orgasm Inc., the story of One Taste. A company which was founded and presented itself as a female sexual health brand, you know, empower yourself, love yourself, you know, the orgasm is all-powerful, all that kind of stuff. But ever so slowly, it seems to have turned into a cult. And yeah, that sounds like a really fascinating documentary. And that has been added to the list. And there's also a very, very low-budget British film which has been added to Netflix. It looks like it was made on a shoestring independently and netflix has since bought it i can't find any evidence that it did get other distribution so technically this isn't a netflix exclusive but it may as well be it's called the art of love and also is based around orgasm as a london transport worker in her 50s is stuck in a rut with her boring marriage, so she signs up to be a reviewer of sex toys. And this gives her a new lease on life and gives her some pocket money, and it also encourages her to break out of her shell and form a friendship, a bond, with a much younger and much hunkier male model who is you know, the face of this company. And working together, they affect each other's lives. And yeah, that sounds kind of interesting, kind of nice. It's been added to the list, but I probably won't get to it anytime soon. Because I do have a lot of Oscar Beatty films, and there's another couple being added to the list this week. On Apple TV+, Plus, there is a film called Causeway, which stars Jennifer Lawrence, who hasn't actually acted for quite some time. But she plays 
a military veteran who suffered a traumatic brain injury and is finding it very, very hard to adjust back to life in the real world, not just because of her military experiences, but also because of her ailments. And she tries to fix her life and find her life, possibly helped by Brian Tyree Henry, who is also on the cast list, somebody I really like. So yeah, Causeway is on Apple TV+. And on Amazon Prime Video is a mildly Oscar-based film called My Policeman, based on a novel and set in two time periods in the 1950s, I think, and the present day, where a closeted policeman gets married, but also has a relationship with a man, and this has ripples throughout time and history, and how decisions made in the past affect the modern day seems to be where this film lies. I mean, it's got an interesting cast. The policeman is being played by Harry Styles, which is an interesting choice, and his beard wife is being played by Emma Corrin. So, yeah, My Policeman, it sounds like it might be rather interesting, and that is being released onto Amazon Prime this week. And there's also another release which is odd. Technically, I would guess you would classify this as a TV movie, but the lines between cinema and TV movie have been blurred so thoroughly over the last decade or so that I think this qualifies for consideration on my podcast, and I'll probably get around to it since it's on my TV and I can just watch it. I mean, Every now and again, I do need to kill some time. So I might end up killing some time with Cursed France, which is a comedy movie produced by and starring Will Arnett and produced by Comedy Central. This is a Comedy Central original film, which I honestly didn't think they did, but they've released it around Halloween and we have access to it in the UK version of the Comedy Central channel, so why not? I like Win Arnett, and it sounds like an interesting premise. A group of friends in their 30s reunite for a Halloween party, and in the course of this party, they uncover an old party game they did when they were kids, you know, filling out a little sort of workbook kind of thing. You know, these are the things which will happen to us when we are older. And a mischievous witch shows up, and the things that they said when they were kids have now happened and how do you deal with that particularly when some of these things are utterly utterly absurd so yeah that could be kind of fun or kind of dumb or both but anyway it's available on comedy central and i might kill time with that at some point this week so yeah a lot of stuff newly released this week Desperately going to be trying to fit all this in, in and around my screenings at the Film Bath Festival, but the next cinematic episode of this podcast, when and if it comes out, will be reviewing the films All That Breathes, Return to Dust, Neptune Frost, Living, and Call Jane. An eclectic selection of stuff and a long selection of stuff, but that is what is coming up in the cinematic end of the spectrum. The two watch list. Since the last time I recorded, I have ticked off a couple of things from my to watch list. 
I have watched the VOD ghost story here before, which is not exactly the film I was expecting, but is very, very good. I did like that a lot. And I also ticked off the mildly Oscar Beatty film released through Apple TV Plus, Raymond and Ray, which was surprisingly stagey, but you know, an okay film. And yes, a lot of the highest priorities I have at the moment are for various Oscar Beatty type reasons. There's the German Oscar submission on Netflix, All Quiet on the Western Front. Tobias Lindholm's new film starring Jessica Chastain and Eddie Redmayne, The Good Nurse. Henry Selleck's animated feature, Wendell and Wild, which got released onto Netflix and I'm sure is going to be a strong contender for the animated feature Oscar. And there's also the Argentinian international feature submission, Argentina 1985. So yeah, some Oscar Beatty stuff to get to. There's also stuff I've already got downloaded onto my tablet and I really need to tick off before the rental expires. But next on that list is the micro-budget horror comedy, Val. So yeah, that's a bullet point highlight list of the stuff that's coming up on the next streaming episode. But when that will come out, considering all the screenings I've got at the Film Bath Festival, I do not know. But regardless of anything else, that is the end of this show. And all that remains for me to say is this has been Yay Nay or Mare, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath, southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure. <laughs>